<laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. No, yeah. <laughs> I know, I'm with you on that. Why? Why would you? You know, the I've got a ten. I've got a ten. Did you hear that little higher pitch in my voice? Oh, oh come on! I am. <laughs> <laughs> come on, everyone! <laughs> <laughs> come on, everyone! Let's go camping. <laughs> three. Glamping. It's got to be the ugliest word. Yeah, the ugliest thing. Glamping. Yeah. Which is oh, cool. Jonathan! Surely it's not. He doesn't, they don't do it. It's they not don't do it in North I'm London. sorry. I was going to say we don't. We don't go outside London for our slang. <laughs> well, unless we jump to New York. I, want, I mean, I'm, I'm, well, I'm hoping we've got a bit, a bit of a bit of a slammed slangtastic. Kind of I've got stuff. some slangtastic Excellent. info, but it's some. Um, we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll see. On that note, hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. As usual, we're gathered around the kitchen table in the luxurious Islington Canalside office of Unbound, the website which brings authors and readers together to make great books. You might hear ducks quack, you might hear kettles boil, but that's the joy of a rich audio environment. <laughs> I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound. I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. Uh, we're joined, as we always are, by the writer and expert, Matthew Clayton. <laughs> Campologist. <laughs> we, no. The public have had enough of experts, Matthew, but we haven't. <laughs> oh, uh, kind so, words, Andy, kind you, words. And joining us today is Jonathan Green. Jonathan is a writer, historian, survivor... <laughs> and chronicler of the London 60s hippie underground, and he is the English language's very own slang lexicographer. You can find him on Twitter at Mr. Underscore Slang. Is that correct, Jonathan? That sounds good to me. All right, good. And for the, for the last four decades, Jonathan has been cataloguing, codifying, and communicating the joys of the fruitier side of the English language, leading no less person than former backlisted subject... The person who coined the term Mr. Slang was... Martin Amos. Amos. In a very, very, very small footnote. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. We must take what we can. We should should say that, uh, you know, just to amplify that, Jonathan is the... Absolutely is the the, the sole proprietor, owner, (laughs) compiler, editor of what I... Back when we worked together in, in my castle days, called the OED of the streets. But Green's... Dictionary of Slang is one of the is one of the great edifices of, of modern reference publishing. And if you out there haven't got a copy, you should get one. And I will add to that that if, like me, you are a uh, '60s obsessive yes. uh, and you read as I did in 1989, I think I read 88, it. maybe. I had to wait for paperback. Uh, <laughs> I got a free one. <laughs> a book called Days in the Life Voices from the English Underground, which is a magnificent, important it's classic book. Absolutely superb. You, so, did a, you did a few oral histories as well, the oral history of. I did of six. Oral, and I did immigrants, it, which I would love to do, do again, again now. Yeah, Cannabis, was that an oral history? Was that no, 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 that was more a sort of. Personal journey. <laughs> 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 also, also, we should mention in this distinguished in passing, Chasing the Sun, the History of Lexicography. Yes, I mean, that's what I, I mean. I did move on from the 60s. Um, also, also, much as I love the 60s. Also, Jonathan, I, I met Jonathan when I interviewed him about his book, Odd Job Man. Oh, yeah. Odd Job Man is a category we're very fond of here on Backlisted. The Biblio memoir. memoir. It is yeah. a Biblio <laughs> memoir, yes. I think it, yes, it is. Uh, you, didn't you cut your teeth, Jonathan, writing um, erotica for Fiesta magazine? I don't think Fiesta really jibes with the word erotica. <laughs> 
was what was known as a top shelf title. It was wonderful. I mean, I was the letters editor of Fiesta for four glorious weeks. I'd broken up with, with a woman who just started the first feminist magazine in the country, Rosie Boycott. And I thought, what can I do? I know I'll go and work for Fiesta. <laughs> and we used to get these wonderful... We're not really here talking about this, but, but we did used to get the most amazing letters. I mean, they say everything's made up. I'm sure the letters were made up, but the letters as letters written in green ink on lined mm. paper, both sides of the paper, mm. were, I fear, very true. And I could, if you like, expatiate upon this, but perhaps I shouldn't. Well, we'll see where we get to. We, we, but moving on, yeah, you're here <laughs> to talk to us um, about uh, Absolute Beginners by Colin McInnes, great London novel, cult novel. Uh, I'm going to stay an interest here as well. I consider the whole purpose of Backlisted to have been to get to this point. <laughs> so, so watch out, everyone. So perhaps briefly then, Andy, yes, is briefly. this a time-honoured fashion? What else have you been reading? Uh, so I have been reading, actually, to, be, to tell you the truth, I have mostly been reading books by Colin McInnes this week. Have you, uh, but, have you not read them all, all already? Yes, but I hadn't. There's a, there's, well, we'll come on to it. I, I had read them several times when I was a teenager, uh, and I'd read Absolute Beginners, I guess, on average every three or four years for the last 30 years. <laughs> but I, haven't, I hadn't read the other two the novels in his London trilogy since the 80s. So I went back and read those again. But we'll talk about that in a minute. What I want to talk about is that I was in Paris last weekend. Oh, wait. We took my, yes, we took my, <laughs> my, my niece to Paris. She's going back to Australia. She's been living here for a year. So we went to Paris for the day and I was allowed special dispensation while my family went on the bateau mouche to <laughs> leg it to the Palais de Tokyo <coughs> to go and see the Michel Welbeck <laughs> exhibition. <laughs> Restez vivant, that's, to stay that's, alive. That's got a corky. Um, I'm going to explain all about on the front of the catalogue, which I brought with me. There's a picture of <laughs> his a late dog, a corgi called Clément. Uh, yeah, I bet you're sad you laugh now, aren't you? Which I'm going to... Well, it's got a wonderful, moody face. Yeah. But this exhibition, anyone who knows the things I write about will know that I'm a big fan of Welbeck. He is my favourite living writer, <laughs> for better or worse, which means that I spend my life telling people that Michelle Welbeck is my favourite living writer, and they go, but he's... No, he's awful. And I say, no, no, that's interesting because you don't understand him. <laughs> and, uh, and we go from there. Um, but I really love his work. I think he is very funny and very pessimistic in a kind of Eeyore-ish way, which I really like. And um, so anyway, um, at the Palais de Tokyo, which is, I suppose, the Parisian equivalent of the ICA, isn't it, Jonathan, really? Something like those. Yeah. Lines, yeah. Um, there's an exhibition that he's curated, <laughs> I suppose you'd say, about his... Um, the things that inform his work or things that he loves. So you pass through a series of rooms that contain, as you would expect from Welbeck, little... There's a brilliant computer screen that says, against a black and white background, vous n'avez aucune chance, you have no chance. Con continue? And then, a, and then a button that says... Okay. <laughs> like the like the baguette and I can't go on, you'll go on. Okay. And there's a room because he's fascinated by, for instance, tra the, the travel industry, which is one of the things that he wrote about in a novel called Platform. There's a room where the floor is entirely made of postcards. You walk across this horrible selection of postcards that have been laid out 
to create this awful sense of an infinity of terrible choices available to you <laughs> as, play, as holiday destinations. And then there's another room which you go into where a, an office has been built in the middle of it. And inside the office is just the most horrible slag heap of books and records and a keyboard and a computer and some Playmobil and a book of erotica. And um, I was like, that looks like my office. <laughs> so that's brilliant. And then you go into a room of his, of his pornographic photographs. Brilliant. But then you come out into a room devoted to his late dog, Clement. And brilliantly, it's laid out like he lived in Ireland while Clement was alive. He was living in Ireland. It's laid out like an Irish funeral parlour. It has <laughs> it has laminated wooden walls and a tartan carpet. It has photos of Clement on the wall. It has um, a piece of music by Iggy Pop playing about how what it, what is a dog? A dog is a machine for love, and and in the middle is a vitrine full of in chronological order all Clement's toys from the time he was a puppy until he died. And it is, given in the true Welbeckian fashion, you've been through this series of terrible, filthy, alienated environments, and suddenly you're in this room of actual love. It's incredibly moving. Incredibly moving. And so I, had, I thought it was one, wonderful. It won't, clearly it won't come to the UK. Uh, but, but clearly it won't. Why? Well, first of all, I difficult think it's to difficult to move, but also it's clearly been funded by those crazy French. Those crazy French. <laughs> uh, but I was thinking what British... I can think of other British cultural figures who might do it, but I was trying to think of a British author who would, who would do the same thing, who would have an aesthetic that you could represent in different media... And people wouldn't Maybe think Meads they were a... Meads might be somewhere, you know, fixed. Meads, yeah. Yeah. Jonathan Meads. I cannot imagine this, an equivalent in the UK. No. I just cannot imagine it. No, I, but that's you can't imagine. Honest. He also, I mean, I had a, I, I wouldn't say a run-in, but I was like, once five or ten years ago, brought in by, by, by the radio, and he was supposed to be talking about his attitude to the 60s, which, of course, is that I don't like it. Because I'd done Days in the Life, um, I was dragged in. And, and we were there, and it was 8 a.m. And I went in, and I was looking around, and I thought, hmm, who's the tramp sitting yeah, over? And he yeah. was sort of there, stuck down in look. the green room. <laughs> Obviously, well, it seemed to me that he was pissed as a fart at 8 in the morning. And what I realise now, and I, and I, in my stupid naivety, and he, he, wouldn't, he would not speak English, although I'm sure he can, because he was living in Ireland. And he was giving them a hard, hard time. And I, in my naivety, was trying to help. He must have thought I was mind-numbingly stupid, as indeed I was. He, you could see that, I can't remember, I mean, it was... It wasn't the start of the week. I can't remember what it was. It was something quite, quite major on BBC. And he just, they, they, they could see the, the, the interviewers, sweat running down their yeah. faces. Why can't we get something out of him? He's famous. He's famous. Say, say something to us. But he said nothing. He gave an interview a couple of weeks ago to the FT where he said, what I sort of think is a, an emblematically brilliant bit of uh, Welbeck, I simply don't care. He said... They said, he said, "Well, I'm the I'm the best uh, I'm the best novelist in in the world. That brings certain problems." <laughs> and the, the interviewer said, 
said, but what, I, I said, I'm flabbergasted. And I, 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 I think, I say, but what, what about Philip Roth? And Welbeck looks at me and says, no, I, he is repetitive. <laughs> <laughs> but what does he make of people who the French adore, like David Lodge and Ian McEwan, and who they, they worship? I, 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 mean, I personally I don't like either. I can't imagine he'd have a huge I amount could, of time for no, McEwan. Or David Lodge even left. But you know what? We, you know, we like McEwan and we like Lodge, yeah. but we can't imagine... David Lodge curating an exhibition to himself at the ICA, can we? You know, so... Can, can I ask a question? Yes. What percentage of the audience who went to see this exhibition is aware of the, what an Irish funeral parlour looks like? <laughs> Presumably very few. But also, it's worth saying that the audience there were uh, incredibly mixed in terms of ages and genders, uh, that it wasn't, you know, furtive... Uh, misogynists such as myself. <laughs> <laughs> there were people of uh, all colours, creeds, and genders uh, there. As in hijabs. I spent a certain amount of time in Paris. Corgis are not big in France, I don't think. So right. it's interesting that he should choose a corgi <laughs> as his love object. <laughs> so that's what I was I don't doing. see many of them. Anyway. I was sort of reading the exhibition. That's what I'm saying. But John, what have you been reading? Um, uh, well, I've been reading the, the Beast, the second oh, in yes. a, a trilogy of novels by Paul Kingsnorth. Um, you know, should disclaimer alert and all that, that we published The Wake, which was longlisted for the Booker and won the Gordon Byrne Prize and shortlisted for various other. And it is an extraordinary book, which everybody remembers because it was written in a kind of a invented language that was not modern English and not Anglo-Saxon, but a kind of an amalgam of the two and was remarkable. This is completely different. This is set now. And the, it's, it's a very, very, it's a, it's a, it's a shorter, much more, um, in, a, in a way, uh, it, it, there is a sensibility that it shares with the wake. It's a very uncompromising book, more, more like a prose poem, really, than a, a work of fiction. There's only one character, and you meet this character in a farmhouse or a, you know, half-derelict farmhouse on what one imagines is Dartmoor. Um, being pelted by rain. Um, it's very unclear exactly what happens in the that there is a terrible accident and he's, he is, he's injured and he, um, he kind of manages to heal himself sufficiently to, um, to walk into the, lo- the edge of the local town. He, becomes, he sees a beast, an animal, sort of beast of you know, large, what it turns out to be a large cat, you think, mm. and becomes obsessed with hunting it and finding it. And that is essentially the plot of the novel is he goes into town and he comes back again. Um, and I'm not going to tell you whether he finds the beast or not, because insofar as there, yeah. there is a, uh, a plot in this book, it's, it's that. But it is, I have to say, and the character is called Edward Buckmaster. And those who read The Wake will know that Buckmaster was the, yeah. was the main character in, in the way. It's, it's very, very intense. In it, and it's totally in that sort of almost Kafka way of... You know, he just takes this scenario and totally milks it for as much as it can get. And the landscape, insofar again as there are characters, the, the landscape is a is a character. The the, the the sense of is it set in the same place? No, it's it's definitely different. He's and you you learn more about him through the book. You learn that he's obviously left his wife and and child to come and do this. It's not clear what he's doing or why he's doing it, but there is a sort of a sense that he's in some sense a kind of you know he's like a hermit. You know, he's he's gone. Yeah. He's gone into the wilderness to fast. I mean, he doesn't eat. 
Uh, he drinks a lot of water. He, he as I say, he manages to heal himself. I'll give you go. Just I read one little small passage and from how, it. How, how does sorry to interrupt? Yeah, no, how does good. it relate to the wake? In besides only in a kind of you'd have to really know to call it a, a, in a way to call it a sequel to the wake would be. Yeah, misleading for a lot of people right. who it might be but expecting. He's, but he's referring to it as a trilogy, isn't yeah. he? And he's doing, well, the idea is a thousand years ago, now a thousand years hence. That's the plan for the trilogy. Right. And the, the, only, the only real crossover is the name. But there is a kind of a sense of a man dislocated, not, not feeling part of the modern world, not feeling able to, to in, 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 in a way, impotent, not able to. Mm. But gains in power and the, 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 the presentation of the beast in the book and you know the beast is kind of the landscape and is the weather and is the, the, his and it's as good as anything i've ever read on that you know that thing of that the landscape is a is a is an outward manifestation of our inner kind of state he writes he writes i mean it's brilliant it's kind of compelling i mean you can't i'd be you know if you don't like long very long kind of sentences without much punctuation it might not be for you but if you kind of like that sort of <laughs> slightly messianic strain in literature it's good but i'll just read you this bit because i think it, it um even negging us there John. yes sorry <laughs> it would be impossible for me to guess even how much time passed in this way this is when he's you know he's in, injured every day was the same and this was simply how it had always been every day in the stone room with the table and chair with the cupboard and the window, with the white heat outside and around me. I was here and perhaps had always been here, or perhaps had never been here before, but I didn't think much about it. I had my body to think about. I had to rebuild it. I was being born again in the world, retraining my muscles, understanding my pain. So, intense. And, and I think pretty remarkable. I Getting very good reviews already, isn't yeah. it? I've read um, a review by um, M. John Harrison in the Gold. Yeah, which is a terrific very, review. I mean, you know, he's writing in that in that kind of tradition of sort of, it's that sort of almost Blakean kind of uh, visionary prose, I suppose. Um, and I, I'm, I, which I'm, you know. I saw a comparison. It wasn't in Mike's review. It was somewhere else. To Cormac McCarthy, yeah, is that yeah? I, t- I, t- I think it, I think there are elements. There are definitely elements. The kind of the road. Yeah. Kind of uh, end of Cormac McCarthy's over, maybe. Um, it's not really much. He's not. I mean, he's certainly ploughing his own interesting furrow in um, in English in English fiction. Ri- do you know whether he's written all three of them? No, he hasn't written the third one yet. I do know that. Right. Um, but I, I have to say, I, you know, it's always I, the wake has been so intimately bound up with with Unbound. I, yeah. I, I was kind of slightly trepidatious reading. This is published by Faber and very well published as well, and it's beautifully done. Um, but I, I have to say, it more than exceeded my expectations. So, definitely one for that kind of person who likes that kind of book. <laughs> okay, it's time now for an advert. But now. But now. Come on. Come on, let's go. I didn't read this book 54 years ago. I finished reading it 20 minutes ago for the first time, which is a bit a huge embarrassment because, you know, it is one of those books which... I, even I know that everybody really should have read, particularly people who have spent as much time in Soho and love London and jazz and fashion and music as much as I do. But anyway, I hadn't read it, and now I've read it, and guess what? Really, Two thumbs up. It's really good. <laughs> it's go. brilliant. It's a, it's, you know, it is. Um, but I, I, I love that thing when you haven't read something and you read it for the first time, and the language is just more 
it's just better than you imagine. It you know, we we our la- Jonathan, the last episode of Backlister we we recorded was yeah. with Selena Gordon and was about Last Exit to Brooklyn by Hubert Selby. And we were saying last time this episode is almost like part two, in a way, because of the they're nothing like one another books, but they have cult status, and yet their cult status kind of diminishes them as books. Because what John is saying is what we were saying about Hubert Selby last time, that actually reading Last Exit to Brooklyn, which I never had done, I was thinking, well, this is, but this is great. This isn't good for a cult book. This is, this is the real thing. So, Jonathan, when did you first encounter Absolute Beginners by Colin McInnes? I reckon I was 16 because it says 1964, so it's not 54 years. Actually, it's only 52. (laughs) (laughs) But I would give anything. I really mean it, and and Andy and I have discussed this. Reading it at 16, and I've read it over the years for one reason or another, gut it for its slang, whatever it might be for my dictionaries. But reading it again at sour old 68, I'd love to recreate the, the... excitement that that book brought me, the, the, the knowledge it brought me. Now, because I'm Sarold 68, I can see, I can compare it with other work he did and say, well, he's being a bit didactic here. He's recycling a few pieces he wrote for Encounter, da-da-da-da. But at the time, it was, it was just eye-opening. It was fantastic. And, and to cut from the book to my first visit, which would have been a year or so later, to, to Notting Hill and walking down into Notting Hill... Portobello particularly, Ladbroke Grove, and thinking he calls that area Napoli, and walking through there and suddenly going, fuck me, I'm in Napoli. It's heaven. And and, and absolutely loving it. And it's just one of those, I mean, when you're that age, you're like a sponge. Well, I think you are, I don't know, now I'm just a dried up old God knows what. But at that age, age, one's like a sponge, and they were this amazing input. Um, Ironically, because he never touches them, there were the things like the Beatles, Bob Dylan, so on. Still For me, come. Brecht, whatever, whatever, whatever. Mm, yeah. But at the time, 64, these things were all flooding into my well, life. And one of the things that was flooding into my life was, was Colin McInnes, and in particular, Absolute Beginners. Again, it was that age when you educated yourself through Penguin Books. And although Tony Godwin, who was the great editor of the time, had, had changed things and put, God help us, pictures on the cover, um, nonetheless, I think for me, I was still of a generation which had been started off in the 30s, aggrandized in the 40s in the war because you could put your penguin book into your battle dress pocket and so on and so forth. We were still educating ourselves very much through penguins. I was a snotty little bastard. I wouldn't read Pam. <laughs> Funnily enough, that's something I just bought a copy of this book called No Novel Reader by McInnes, which was published in 74 or 5 near the end of his life. And he talks exactly about that. He talks about the effect of penguin paperbacks on generations of people who had not been able to reach books. You know, the, as you say, their kind of autodidactic element to it was suddenly you could do that if you wanted to in a way that perhaps hadn't been possible before. The interesting thing with penguins also were not like their American equivalents from, albeit I think Alan Lane took the idea from America. But, but I mean, in, in the specific area of writing about the young, writing about teenagers, I mean, most of the stuff that you'd get in the States in those days was written maybe by Harlan Ellison 
or by Hal Elson, yeah. who's oh, a different was, person, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or by Wendell Brown, or by a load of people. But they would always be called things like jailbait and switchblade. They were pulp. Right? Lots, yeah. They were pulp. They're great. I love them. I, yeah. but, but nonetheless, McInnes was completely different. I, I will echo what you're saying, Jonathan, in as much as, again, I've written about this at length, but I read Absolute Beginners as many people my age would have done in the 80s. I read it in 1984 when I was on holiday in uh, the Western Isles of Scotland with my parents <laughs> when I was 16. Oh, I love that. I'm I, sure that was I, in 1974. I, I, I go, no, well, I'm not absolutely. But I read, I remember reading the bit that I just watched Mitch read just now, those last 30 pages. I remember reading those on the deck of a Caledonian McBrain ferry on the way back from Iona to Oban. And the thing is, there's a phrase that I really dislike in the publishing world and in the book, the world, which is, you know, this book changed my life. And what that normally means is I really like this book. But in the case of Absolute Beginners, this is probably the one, one or two or three maybe books that changed, changed my life. I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you about books now had I not read this book and also in terms of what I felt about politics and what I felt about other races and difference and the potential of being young all those things which sound a bit like cliches and yet they were totally true and so when I come back to this book now I always come back to it it probably is my favorite book for sentimental reasons but I always come back to it with a slight fear that it might the have magic would have yeah, gone. Yeah. And I have to say, reading it last week, I, I, I first 30 pages, I was thinking, oh, no, I don't know, I don't know. But then it got me. Like it always gets me. I think it's, there's, it's unique. It's a unique book. It's flawed. But what it has, the spirit of it, is probably not found anywhere else. I don't think it changed my life, but I think it broadened it enormously. And maybe that's the same as change. I'm not sure. Mm. Going back to the sponge thing, you're, you're looking all, you're, you're just so open, or you should be, and I know I was, to, to, as it were, suggestion. And for me, perhaps the biggest suggestion was books, although yeah. rock and roll and so on and so that's forth were also mm. enormously suggestive, as it were. McInnes just taught you a lot of stuff that, I mean, I'd, I'd been alive, I'd known that, you know, I was much, obviously a little bit younger, or maybe a lot younger, you know, when, when Oswald Mosley was, was basically winding people up for race riots, and you could still go, when I went to, to Napoli, as it were, it still said KBW on the walls, keep Britain white, yeah. all that shit was still there, it was a very different place, Notting Hill, as, as everybody knows, I always expect when I go there now, which is not very often, that I will be walking down streets paved with gold, but it's still the same old gate, basically. Mm. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's just hard to say. Well, it, it had an enormous effect. It was just educational, I suppose. And there is that element that runs through the whole of, of McInnes's work, which is very didactic. Yeah, and it, the yeah. trouble, I think, is that it, the, well, the wonderful thing he, is that it's invisible. It's invisible. Mm -hmm. Like, like mm -hmm. with Dickens, you don't notice, and I'm talking as a slang lexicographer, you don't notice that he's actually written, he's actually read a book about a dictionary of criminal slang, but he puts it into Oliver Twist and you don't see the seams. Mm -hmm. as, again, obviously, McInnes, particularly with the, with the um, race riot stuff, had done his research, had, had taken it on board, so on and so forth, but you don't see the seams. Mm -hmm. um, 
by the time you get to his later, the later books in the trilogy, you do see them yeah. too much, and and, and that's yeah, why they're not. I, I, I want, uh, if anybody's seen, um, there's a couple of films uh, that, um, if you want to know sort of what Notting Hill was was like, or the yeah, what Napoli was like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to mention. There's two films I was going to mention. One of which is one of them is Ten Rillington Place. Yeah. If you if you walk, if you look at Ten Rillington Place yeah. and you see what what that area looked like then, but also there's a film. Do you remember a film, Jonathan, called Leo the Last? I do. A John and that was Borman when film. I was around. But even more, if you want to, I've always yeah. wanted to run a a, a, a night of of. of London, London geogra- geographical films, and one of them, of course, it would be the Blue Lamp because yeah, the last yeah, five or yeah, ten yeah, minutes yeah, yeah. of the Blue Lamp, when they have the huge chase, or maybe it's not the last five. Anyway, there is a ten-minute chunk of the Blue yeah, Lamp, and you, and it, which goes, as far as I recall, from Westbourne Park to mm, mm-hmm. Ladbroke Grove, and so on. in fact, I think all the way through to Shepherd's Bush, and virtually none of that is there. Certainly, Westbourne Park. When you realise that the church that's in the middle of the m- middle of Westbourne Park, it was not isolated, but was surrounded yeah, by terraces, yeah, yeah. And, and those things are wonderful. I mean, it, and uh, McInnes does that. I mean, I think one of the things about McInnes that's incredibly important because people talk about the teenagers and and, and pop yeah. and so on and so forth, which we should which we should get round to. But he is a London novelist. He's I think, a major London. Yes, novelist. I think that's absolutely that's what I. And that's in perhaps that's why he laughs <laughs> because he's. <clears throat> he, he's, he, he just the bit that I the bits I love as I say the idea I am in Napoli this is he's, he's portrayed it to me he's shown it to me and here it is in three dimensions was so exciting I think that's that, that's the thing that the, the two things that struck me one was I'm very very pleased I hadn't seen the film uh, the uh, Julian Temple film so I didn't want to be carrying around the style in my head you know you have an idea yeah. that it is a kind of a it's a sort of Tommy Steele movie, but it, I would rather die than see the film. Yeah, well, <laughs> that was one thing. The second thing, I is, it off. the second thing, thing was I was much more interested. What really interested me was um, the, the, the Londonness for sure. It does make you want to go to Notting Hill and, and wander. It does make you want to go to Soho. Mm-hmm. But the, it, the, the language, the, the dialogue in particular, I think is is really mm-hmm. it's arresting <coughs> and 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 not in a kind of hey daddy-o kind of way I mean there's a there's, there's a really it's it's just really I, I found myself reading and rereading passages from it and, and marking them and, and just thinking you know that's a this is this is it's a it's a proper proper literary novel so you it's not a, to, it's shall not, I just give the synopsis yeah. before you read a bit so I'm going to read the this is the this is the blurb I'm going to read the blurb on the back of the yeah the penguin edition from 1965 with the Peter Blake cover. Uh, it says, Our guide on this conducted tour of London's teenage subgroups is an astonishingly, sparklingly articulate 18-year-old photographer. He's actually 19, everyone. Uh, street, holiday, park, studio, artistic poses, and when I can find a client, pornographic, with a riotous line in espresso patter. From Belgravia to Shepherd's Bush, we drift with him among a colourful set of contacts and cronies. Crep Suzette, his spade-crazy 17-year-old chick, Edward the Ted, the homosexual hoplite, Zesty Boy Sift, the pop song writer. In a hilarious round of the jazz dives, drinking clubs and parties of all kinds where this under-20 underworld hangs out. Climax of this modern Mayhew comes when our likeable guide gets involved in the Notting Hills race riots with an unexpected result. 
That's not a very good blurb, is it? That doesn't do justice to this well, book at all. Well, that is that, of course, that I would have read age 16, because I obviously, I'm sure you've gone through that, I'm sure everybody has. Why did I pick this book up? Why did I go up to the counter of wherever it was and offer three and sixpence, <laughs> um, which would have been a lot to me in those days, um, still is, and, <laughs> um, and read this. I mean, it's so bad. And they cannot even get Ed the Ted right. He has to be Edward yeah, the Ted. Edward I mean, Ted, yeah. And you, you wonder if it was some, you know, some nice young boy had just come down from Oxford and it was, you know, you do this. I don't know. I don't well, the, know. the word John... And the word John review is embarrassing as well, which he talks about. It's, boy, it's a real gasser. Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> the thing about the language, if I may, you know, tout my, my slang hat for a while, is that it's very good. He makes up is that he, he you look at you look at no 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 I'm, I'm talking yeah. about the slang yeah, yeah, yeah. and the slang he uses which is he uses about two hundred words in it is it's it's, it's, it's right that's yeah. the point it's right he makes up a few things I think I mean I don't I've never found he right at the beginning he uses the word Felix to mean penis which and he talks about it in the context of of skyscrapers and tower well tower blocks I think he's talking about and he talks about Felix's rising to the clouds cloud kisses and so on and I think that was him having fun maybe you know but most of what he uses is very much from I read that differently see I think that's on the first page right? yeah it is and the line says uh, 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 prove uh, me wrong no no I just uh, I'm I'm just these yeah yeah like Cinerama, you can see clean new concrete cloud kisses rising up like Felix's from the old Englishy squares. See, I thought what I read that as, and what I've always read that as, is he's getting the word Phoenix wrong. Yeah, I thought that he exactly. thinks he I knows it all, which is a big part of the character of the narrator. When your he's life it a is dedicated wrong. to collecting 1,400 synonyms <laughs> for the word penis and many other things, I'm afraid it becomes very narrow once I would, I would like to. I would like. I, I think that's how I saw it yeah. in 1964. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting. Maybe it's maybe it's a combo. I don't know. And when he, I think zip. When he uses about zips. When I think he's talking about drugs or is it drink? I can't remember. He talks about zips and he's talking about which he by which he means sips, small quantities. As far as I know, that doesn't exist anywhere else. There's mm. a few like mm. that. Mm. This isn't to put... And there's one or two things I can't... Oh, there's one word that he puts <sighs> in there. And this is me being so pedantic. He uses the word wrought to mean yeah. upset, which is hugely common in Australia and completely non-existent as far as I'm aware and, and we, in the UK at the time. And we yeah, should say that he had he was brought up in Australia. Yes, that, so, that seems very you know. he's well he's a voyeur, is he not? And that's yeah. an enormous not only is he didactic, and he's also, I think, teaching himself. And he's he's telling us what he's Absolutely. learning. And and the, the, the excerpt from Horace Ove that I quite like yeah, yeah, we'll is, is, yeah, yeah. is 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 saying that. Just that on he, the Felix thing, yeah. I, it just made me think because I just read the last right. there's a great little paper. He gets a lift at the end by Mickey um Mickey Ponderosa. Ponderosa. And Mickey didn't seem to approve of this, although I thought the cat might be flattered. He said he, I thought the cat might be flattered, meaning him. He said once a Roman always a Roman. And in every country, there were horrors as well as felicities. That was the word he used. Mm. I just, yeah, I just yeah, thought that, that sort of Felix of felicity is not a not a word you get. John, you, John, and Jonathan were both talking about uh, London. This is a book about London. Yeah. I just want to read one paragraph, which um, which I think illustrates um, how McInnes writes about London. But they also illustrate something else that I that I just want to bring attention to because I love it so much in this book. This is like in the first section. 
So I went out of the dubious, uh, which is a drinking. I'm just about to. Club, right? I had exactly the Did same passage. There you go. Such a so I went out passage. of the. So yeah. I went out of the dubious to catch the summer Trishes. evening breeze. <laughs> the night was glorious out there. The air was sweet as a cool bath. The stars were peeping nosily beyond the neons, and the citizens of the queendom, in their jeans and separates, were floating down the Shaftesbury Avenue canals like gondolas. Everyone had loot to spend. Everyone a bath with verbena salts behind them, and nobody had broken hearts because they were all ripe for the easy summer evening. The rubber plants in the espressos had been dusted, <laughs> and the smooth white lights of the new style Chinese restaurant, not the old Ma Yong categories, Ma Jong categories, but the latest thing with broad glass fronts and Dacron curtainings and a beige carpet over the interiors, were shining a dazzle like some monster telly screens. Even those horrible old Anglo-Saxon public houses, all potato crisps and flat stale ale and puddles on the counter bar and spittle, look quite alluring, provided you didn't push those two tun doors that pinch your arse and wander in. In fact, the capital was a night horse dream. And I thought, my lord, one thing is certain, and that's that they'll make musicals one day about the glamour-studded 1950s. And I thought, my heaven, one thing is certain too, I'm miserable. I mean, first of all, so that's beautiful, right? But the second thing to say about it, and the thing that that Jonathan and I were talking about this week, for me, the reason why this book still... Why it spoke to me then and it still works now is it captures uh, that adolescent mixture of front and vulnerability better than any other book I can think of, bar none. Bar none. That there's some, that sense of the guy who's got all the answers, but at some level saying, please, someone hug me, is, is so powerful. Very, very I, the only, the analogy that I, I mean, it's coincidentally, it's a mod thing, but the analogy, it, the thing it m- most reminds me of is quadrophenia. Yeah. Because it's a similar kind of Jimmy in quadrophenia in whichever version you care to take. But Jimmy in quadrophenia is is that fantastic mixture of street fighter and kid, right. ha- kid having a nervous breakdown. Incredibly vulnerable, but with all the chat. And that, to me, seems to be the thing that in Absolute Beginners... You know, Jonathan, we were saying McInnes is probably not a great novelist, though this is a great novel. And I almost feel with Absolute Beginners that there's some happy, almost accidental coming together of his talents, vernacular, timing, that lead him to produce this amazing book, which is not quite, you know... Well, conscious. He, yeah. I don't think that, because he's, he's, he's born in 1914, so we're talking about somebody who's no longer a baby, almost as old as me. But, all, <laughs> uh, but he's... And, and there's, there's certain elements in which, as we say, he's a voyeur, he's, he wants to teach us stuff, but somehow it all comes together. In, in absolute beginners, and and as you say, it worked for you in the eighties. It works for John now, mm. and it certainly worked for me back then. But I don't think he knew quite what he was doing yeah, because I you agree. can be very cynical and say, "Well, he did the bits," as I said before, he did the bits on pop stars and so on and so forth, and on the way and teenagers, and on there's one called Sharp Schmutter about clothes, yes, yes, all for right. encounter in the late fifties, very early sixties, and you can see they're being brought together in certain ways, not but again, not obviously, 
to create certain areas of absolute beginners, to create the atmosphere, not the dialogue, but the atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, but he transcends it. He manages to transcend Absolutely, it. Yeah. And the fact that the three of us reading it at different times initially still find it a fascinating book is a huge tick, as it were. Yeah. I, I should have a better word, but it, it's mm. an enormous encomium to go to the other end yeah, of the vocabulary yeah, yeah. that, yeah. that he managed to do this. And he doesn't do it in the others. Unfortunately, he doesn't. And when you move outside the trilogy, I, I tried to read also, other stuff and I didn't enjoy that. Also, so the thing about McInnes as a novelist, to his credit, is that even within these three London novels, City of Spades, Absolute Beginners, Mr. Love and Justice, he's not trying to write the same book every time. He's, he's trying to write a different kind of novel every time. Unfortunately, <laughs> with mixed results, because either he doesn't have this kind of lucky thing to, to access, or else the, the, the setting doesn't quite match the subject. He's trying too hard, dare I say. The other book I, I, I think is worth mentioning is Crust on its Uppers. By Derek Raymond. By Derek Raymond, in fact, by, by Robin Cook. Mm. And, and the interesting, the crust on its up, I mean, there, it's, there are very few, dare I, I'd almost say no books about the 60s, and I raised my fingers at that point in quotes, because one of the things, we, we didn't do that. I mean, what people wrote was manifestos or newspapers <laughs> or rock and roll lyrics or films that never got made or whatever it might be. But actual novels, mm, well, you, wait, you waited for a while for, well, the, the grown-ups were doing it. Evelyn Moore was still knocking stuff out. Kingsley Amis was still knocking out whoever it might be. The likes of me looked to America anyway. Um, mm. but, but the two books that actually, they're both really late 50s books, but they, 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 they move, they, they segue into the 60s. And the one is Absolute Beginners, and the other is, is some, the Chelsea set book, which is Crust on its Uppers. And there's a character in Absolute Beginners called the ex-deb of last year. And you can see that's the world she comes from. And it's a very different world. But there's no way that I, as a 16-year-old, could have re related yeah, to that at yeah. all. Jonathan Meads turned me on to it, but much, much later. Yeah. I, and it's a fascinating book. It's a wonderful book. But it's... It hasn't got the feel for <clears throat> it hasn't got the feel for the world in the same way at all. I, I, I just wanted to say something though about the narrator in the book, that English Holden Caulfield type of, uh, of narrator. But he's very—it's incredibly honest. It's very difficult with cult books because it's so connected in most people's minds. This book with the with the coffee bar culture, with I guess the proto mod. You know, he's brilliant on on clothes, on dress sizes, on fashion, you know, very, very detailed accounts of, of the clothes that the people are wearing. But there's one passage I like, this, this very same, this Deb of last year says, I mean, about being honest about the teenage experience. And I really like this, but he said, she held my arm and said, tell me a secret about you teenagers. Do you have a very active <laughs> sex existence? Which is a pretty good question. And then they can't keep off it. <laughs> no, I replied, we don't. And as a matter of fact, what I said was true, because although you often see teenagers boxed up together in a free and easy, intimate sort of way, it doesn't very often reach the point of no return. But in the kingdom we reside in, the firm belief of the venerable seems to be that if you see kids out and about enjoying themselves, then fleshy vices must be at the bottom of it all somewhere, not just as it often is, frisking and frolicking and having a carefree ball, which... Is, I felt was authentic insight, and that's what it re I remember. What teenagers are always assumed to be, 
you know, shagging each other's senses. Actually, the truth is that they're, they're dressing up, having fun, and not hoping doing for the best. That. Hoping for the best. <laughs> I, I'm just gonna. I'm just wanna, before we say anything more, I just want to do the the little potted biography of McInnes because then we can talk a bit about how he came to write this particular book. So he was born in 1914, died age 61 on the 22nd of April 1976. He was the son of the singer James Campbell McInnes and the novelist Angela Thurkel. He was the great-grandson of the pre-Raphaelite artist Edward Byrne-Jones. He was, was the, he? Yeah. That's quite he was the cousin... That's a tenuous link that you missed there, right? He was the cousin of Rudyard Kipling yeah. and Stanley yeah. Baldwin. Yeah. Um, literature. When he was a boy, the family decamped from... Uh, they lived in Kensington, then they moved to Australia. He grew up in Melbourne, only returning to England in his teens. So he's like a really interesting mixture of... This is what Tony Gould says in the biography. He's like a mixture of Edwardian intelligentsia... Australia in the 1920s and London's post-war bohemia and he habitually described himself, McInnes habitually described himself as quote an English London-born Australian-reared Scot and fundamentally he was a journalist and a radio pundit. He used to appear on Today or the equivalent thereof. He used to appear on a programme called The Critics regularly. Uh, He wrote 1500 radio scripts for the BBC. He hacked them out so how old was he when um, Absolute Beginners came out? Mid-40s. And uh, he's the author of seven novels, the first of which is To the Victor the Spoils, which was published in 1950, and the last of which is Out of the Garden in 1974. And he also wrote a very successful uh, book of essays called England Half English, which was published in 1961. I found a wonderful phrase to describe McInnes. This biography is called Inside Outsider. And McInnes never, never really fit, never really fitted anywhere. And he's described in the biography by several people as, quote, the rudest man I have ever met. Um, (laughs) Did he like a drink? He very much enjoyed a drink. But also as a wonderful description of someone who knew him for a long time and was friendly with him, who said that McInnes was, he was someone who had been borrowed from death. That he he was the saddest and loneliest man that I ever met. Yeah. He was always had his face pressed up to the window, was always looking to belong, while at the simultaneously telling everybody to piss I off. I mean, it is quite a sad novel. Yeah. Well, we the, the I don't want to give the ending no, away, no, but the ending going. is very bittersweet. The Jonathan, you were going to say. That, I was just thinking though, but it, and it take you know the counterculture when you start going back to it, and it's a little bit later than all of this, obviously, a decade later, maybe, well, a little less, but eight, seven or eight years, but it was actually powered by not exactly people like McInnes, but it was powered by Australians and by Americans. It was yeah. powered by outsiders. And in a way, yeah. he fits in that because they want to know. They want to know in a way much more than those of us who already think we know. And, and that was very much true. And it was one of the things I noticed when I was doing Days in the Life, the, the oral history of all this stuff, is how many people, the real movers and shakers, and the obvious one being someone like Richard Neville or Germaine Greer, people of that nature, they, they, had, they had not started off in the UK and they were telling us about what we were doing. Mm. Richard was certainly mm. that. He was a very good editor. An Oz magazine, which he ran, which I think McInnes might have written a couple of pieces He did, for. yeah, he did. And, and, and McInnes was of that type. There's also obviously a strong streak of George Orwell there, particularly in essays like um, 
the, 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 the Express, the Daily Express families. Yes, um, which he says, which, doesn't he? Yes, he, he does. I, he fronts up. He doesn't yeah, pretend it's not yeah. the case. Um, not, dare I say, I mean, and because, it, because it's sub-Orwell, it, it's, it's really, in the end, rather thin. But that's by the by. It's, it's when he's telling us stuff that we haven't noticed. It's when he's explaining stuff. Well, I say we. This is when, you know, for 16-year-old people. One of the things I'm wondering, though, I've been trying to look up what the reviews were like back then and I must admit, having looked through newspaper databases, I can't find well, any. Well, I must say, many. Somebody, on, many. somebody on Twitter told me to go and look at You Never Had It So Good, or Never Had It So Good by Dominic Sandbrook. Oh, yeah. Because, oh, yeah. first of all, it contains some of the reviews of the book, and they are, oh. they are mixed, but yeah, mixed in the yeah. true sense, yeah. uh, rather than mixed meaning bad. <laughs> um, they, are, they are genuinely some good, yeah. some yeah. good, some yeah. good, some yeah. bad. Uh, but also, Dominic Sandbrook really gives, uh, gives uh, absolute beginners a pasting. And he says, um, he say, describes it as a, uh, like a pale copy of Catcher in the Rye. Right, yeah. And you know what? Dominic Sandbrook, I hope you hear this. Because like you, you don't, because you don't, you didn't get it. You <laughs> no, didn't get it. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. But I you didn't get it, but you still had to write something. Era, it, dare I, say. I mean, I, I, know, I, did mention, I did mention Holden Caulfield earlier, but it's not like Catcher in the Rye. At all, I don't. Think you know what, Catcher in the Rye. The, the thing about Catcher in the Rye is Catcher in the Rye is a great book. I'm not going to start going. Yeah. Oh, no good. It's, it's a great book. Yeah, it is. But the things that make it a great book are, for the most part, orthodox and literary. The things that make Absolute Beginners a great book is that it plugs into all these other traditions. Yeah which Salinger could never get within a million miles of because it's not his world. Uh, Jonathan, you, were, you, you brought something with you, which I'm, I'm keen to get in. <laughs> what yeah. was that? Well, you brought... Well, Horace you Ove said you had a little thing about McInnes, which you had interviewed Horace Ove. Yeah, Horace Ove was in, I suppose, Michael de Freitas, later Michael X's entourage, and part of the, the English black power movement. And he, as this piece explains, was the person who took the photos for the cover of Absolute Beginners. And indeed, on your... on your, I'd never seen that picture before. It's wonderful. Much better, dare I say, than the cover of Absolute Beginners, which it's is a, a it's strange a, It's an omnibus edition, which was yeah. published in 69, called Visions of London. London. Great McGibbon and mm-hmm. I mean, this was, this was an interview I did with Horace... Um, who was by then, I think, teaching at Goldsmiths in 1987. And it goes like this. Colin McInnes was an angry white man, angry with his world, his own class, angry about the way the white working class were treated in this country, angry about the way blacks were treated in this country. And he wanted to do something and he wanted to expose himself to it. Actually, he was one of the only writers I can think, I can't think of any others even today that wanted to write about black people, live among black people, get beaten up by black people, sleep with black people, eat with them, and wrote about them. And he understood them because he exposed himself in the most dangerous situations to find out. And as a parenthesis, Mm. Horace is obviously talking more about City of Spades than he, in the context of than absolute beginners. And he did understand black people, but his only fault that he was pushing too hard, he was angrier than the black people he talked to. So although black people got involved with Colin and understood him and he helped a lot, they were a bit scared of him in a way because he would get very upset if he didn't understand what was going on and what you should do with it. 
He was the only person who wrote an interesting article about Michael X after everybody else had condemned him. I found him very interesting because I got very friendly with Colin. I first met him in a room with several other people, and I didn't know who the hell he was. And he was talking about cannibalism in the Caribbean and how the Caribs ate people. And I didn't know who he was. And I said, you're talking bullshit, man. There's no cannibalism in the Caribbean. And he said, don't you tell me that. What do you know about it? I'm telling you there is. And I said, no. And we had a heated argument. What he didn't realize was that before coming to the, to the UK, I'd been working with a paleontologist, working with a very old German anthropologist who'd spent 30-something years trying to find out whether there was any cannibalism in the Caribbean. <laughs> and he discovered that there wasn't any fucking cannibalism. <laughs> and it was some kind of folklore. They could have been just eating monkeys. But Colin had this naive attitude. He couldn't believe this, and he wouldn't believe it. And after the argument, he said, well, I like that. I like it when someone attacks me. And that's what he loved. He wanted someone to fight back. And I got mm. to know him, and he took me into McGibbon and Key and demanded that I did some of his book covers. So I did Absolute Beginners and the others. I mean, that's, a, I, that's I, great. I feel, I, great feel I, should, I should also add that in terms of, certainly in City of Spades, some of the language that's used probably hasn't worn very well, yeah. very of its time. Jumble and, being uh, Yeah, but also, which I've never found but also you know, that criticism <laughs> that we were talking about, about, you know, his attitudes are... Colonial is probably one way of putting it, and yet he's trying to do something in an era where there was no. This is what it comes language down to. This is it. what we discussed. This is in the end, you can you can say this wasn't quite right, and that wasn't quite right, and it's too didactic, and it's too voyeuristic, and so on. But he did it, and what, the one thing yeah, I did yeah, experience, yeah, which, yeah. with respect to you all, and no one else would have been there, was that it was the first time anybody had done it for yeah, us yeah, in the UK, yeah. in London at the time, and that was remarkable. Yeah. For that I, I am in his debt forever. Uh, and I'm in his I'm in his debt forever for writing a book that apparently I in my state of arrested adolescence I, I can never quite get away from. I'm going to give it to my nineteen year old eighteen year old when I get home because I think he'd absolutely love it and I you know I sort of think it is a good good book for teenagers to read I, can, I, wish, know, I, I number, wish I'd read it when I was a the teenager. number of people fascinatingly I've, obviously you know, I've been talking about, about uh, my book or, or, or people will often ask me what's your favourite book or what's a book that would get people reading I often mention Absolute Beginners and fascinatingly John you said it when we started well everybody knows this book so, but you know what this book is being forgotten yeah that that it, it is in the process of passing into history. Uh, that how few people have heard of it. It's partly good. because of the film, because the film killed the book, but also I, I guess and the number of people who've, who've read it. Not everyone has read it and loved it. I won't, you know, make a, a false claim there, but many have, and many people have said to me, "This should be on the curriculum." This is a book that's dealing with things, albeit in a, in in ways that are worth discussing from a historical perspective, but things that are happening I in the UK now. on the wrong side of the political correctness divide. I wonder if that's Perhaps. slightly that it just, yeah. it just just is a little bit too kind of lively to... Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't do PC. Slang doesn't do PC. Um, <laughs> Praise the Lord. I, I can't... I don't know. I mean, as I say, I just... Well, well uh, it wasn't a problem I had to come up against at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whether it would now be consigned to the grim ranks of young adults, I hate to think. I, know, I, don't I hope know. not. It's too good for I that. hope not. Hey, Matthew. Yeah. Hey, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any 
yet more tenuous links. Yeah, so I've got, to one, to, I've got one to or finish this up Or links. Tenebrous links. So I've got a link, in fact, to a previous podcast of ours. <laughs> wow. Which is that, a bit meta. That is self, self-referential. Yeah. Yeah. So, in a previous podcast, we did Andrew Mel came in and talked about Raymond Chandler. High Window, yes, High that's window. right. High Window. High Window. And um, I was delighted that there was a line in High Window about Pink Headed Bug that the Leeds art punk band, the Three Johns, had turned into a single. <laughs> and I was delighted to read Absolute Beginners because on about page 10, uh, Colin talks about teenagers going to record shops. And he uses the phrase teenage nightingales to wax, which remarkably the three Johns also stole and turned into uh, a song. Well, having now got my uh, my taste for McInnes, is should I go, shall I read the trilogy? Should I read City of Spades next? City of Spades, yes. When you read Mr. Love and Justice, I'm not, you should read it because it, you're a completist, I'm yeah. sure. And, and it's necessary. But you'll get, I fear, more and more cross. Right. They're fascinating. Yeah. But you know so much. You, you, yeah. the, you know, the, the, I mean, there's stuff in, in, for instance, Mr. Love and Justice, which at the time was fascinating because yeah. forget the pimp-whore relationship, just talking about places in the East End which were only black sailors were going there and so on and so forth. That, that doesn't exist anymore. We're back to the London thing. And on the London level, those books are very good. They are not absolute beginners. They're, they're, for me, they're too didactic. Yeah. But... I'm I'm saying, right, I'm I agree yeah, with yeah, Jonathan. Yeah. I mean, I think City of Spades is well worth reading, and England, uh, England half English is actually worth reading oh, in yes, terms of his essays. Some, not all, but some of them are absolutely terrific. Right. I was, you know, you were talking about the Three Johns, Matthew. Uh, this book has given me so much, right? And I read it because I like the jam and the jam. Yeah, the jam had song. a single called Absolute, absolute Beginners, Beginners. right? That's why I read it. It's 1981. And there's a lyric in Absolute Beginners, again, when I was like, you know, 13, didn't mean so much to me. <laughs> it's got the lyric, it's like Weller's, Weller is, is trying to find the essence of the book. This is from Wellbeck to Weller. Isn't to Wellbeck to Weller, that's my next book. And <laughs> <laughs> the other way around, Weller to Weller. And um, he's trying to find the essence of the book. There's just these two brilliant lines. I need the strength to go and get what I want. I lost a lifetime thinking of it. Yeah. It's that brilliant mixture of front and regret. Yeah. I think that's the thing that's so powerful in the in this book for me. Can I ask you one last question, Jonathan? Did you was it was it one of the books that I mean, you know, your later career as a slang lexicographer? Did you that when you were reading it as a sixteen-year-old? Was it the language that kind of uh, that stayed with you? I don't. Th- not in this particular book. No, no. no. I, I would love to think that I was this sort of micro micro slang lexicographer but actually I wasn't that bad <laughs> <laughs> well I think on that brilliant note shall we shall we end it thanks to Jonathan to Matthew Clayton as ever to producer Matt Hall and thanks once again to our sponsors Unbound you can get with, in touch with us on Twitter at BatlistedPod on Facebook facebook.com forward slash BatlistedPod and on our page on the Unbound site at unbound.co.uk forward slash BatlistedPod um, and if you <laughs> if you use the if you use the uh, extraordinary uh, antiquated system known as iTunes yes. to listen to backlisted, uh, we'd be grateful if you could rate us or leave a review or you no, know, it, it all helps us spread the word. <laughs> ever so, so humble, ever so humble. Yeah. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another show in a fortnight. Until then, good night. Thanks, everyone.
If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.